Invite your friends over. Crack open a two liter. Order that pizza and blow into the cartridge. Cause today we're talking about pro wrestling video games for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Crazy territory stories, double crosses, and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. Holy crap, you did it. I did it. We did it. We're together again, or we're apart together, or together apart. Maybe we're uh, somewhere else. I'm there, you're here. Maybe I'm right behind you. Maybe neither of us is real. Maybe it's all imaginary. What am I talking about? What's happening? Who am I? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling promoter. I am a pro wrestling booker. But more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling history nerd. And today I am here with nobody. It's just me. Chongo is alive and well. Schedules didn't line up. We couldn't find a good day to record. We've been busy boys. But he'll be back for the next one. Nothing to worry about. But I do have a special guest. Somebody who uh, I... I, I always love hanging out with whoever, somebody I love spending time with when I do these things, and that is my good friend, Nostalgia, because today we're going to be talking about the pro wrestling video games of the late 80s and early 90s, the time of my childhood. It was a weird time when video games were a new thing to have in your house. Yes, I am 500 years old, but it was a magical time because we were getting introduced to pro wrestling as a televised product, as something you could get on a pay-per-view if you could sucker your parents into it, but there was a magical niche weight for the pro wrestling experience right there in your basement with all your friends, sleepovers, three-day weekends, afternoons, and that was pro wrestling video games on the Nintendo Entertainment System. And as always, I do give the disclaimer that I'm giving a subjective view on the information that I have. If there is somebody who's a hardcore gaming historian out there and will say, hey, idiot, that game was designed on this year, or this game came out before that game because, you know, that's it was in Japan first or in Europe first, well, guess what? I'm doing the best I can. I'm telling a subjective story. This is kind of one of those my experience with pro wrestling video games and their tie-ins and what they meant for the industry as a whole. And hopefully you enjoy it because I enjoy talking about it. So before we dive into what was happening with the Nintendo Entertainment System and all the things that came out via that, we first have to talk about the year 1990. Yes, the year 1990, so many decades ago. And when the weekend would come, my friends and I would gather up all the quarters we could get our hands on, hop on our bikes, and head down to Shakey's Pizza on Main Street in Longmont, Colorado. Yes, it's as quaint as it sounds. And we weren't there for the pizza. We couldn't afford it, and we wouldn't want it even if we could. If you have any experience with a Shakey's Pizza, you will remember that it is not a very good meal, but it was there, it was for sale, we were there to play WWF superstars in the arcade. That's right. It was that golden era where every establishment would have at least one arcade game tucked away to keep the kids occupied. It was the days when a Nintendo in your house was a status symbol, not yet the status quo. And the quality of arcade games was still far ahead 
of the home systems with their whopping 16-bit graphics instead of the pitiful 8-bit graphics we put up with at home with our Nintendo Entertainment Systems. Arcade games kept the kids out of parents' hair during dinner at terrible pizza restaurants and kept kids spending money on candy bars and Slurpees while pumping quarter after quarter into the one or two games tucked behind the comic book rack. Yes, I'm nostalgic, and again, yes, I'm ancient. In the late 80s, wrestling was still riding high on the pop culture crossover of the WWF, now the WWE. My generation grew up on WrestleMania, the bigger-than-life, almost cartoonish characters aimed to draw in younger viewers, or the literal cartoon characters on Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling on Saturday mornings. We ate WWF Superstar cereal, we had the WWF ice cream bars, and Hulkamania was still running wild because none of us had yet to see No Holds Barred. We gathered around our televisions to watch WWF superstars. We marveled at the the antics of the Macho Man, of Hulk Hogan, of the Honky Tonk Man. We watched tag team action. We watched endless promos for wrestling pay-per-views that we did not have the ability to watch because we were children and didn't understand how a pay-per-view worked because children are unfortunately quite stupid. So, it was a quasi-religious experience to walk into an arcade and see WWF superstars lit up and hearing the closest thing to the roar of a crowd in the intro as we fumbled for all the loose change in our pockets. The gameplay was simple, and the presentation amazing. You would pick your players to form a tag team. You could choose Hulk Hogan, Macho Man Randy Savage, The Ultimate Warrior, Big Boss Man, Hacksaw Jim Dugan, and the Honky Tonk Man. And holy crap, they even looked like them. This was the first licensed arcade game for WWF and their proprietary characters. Sure, there have been knockoffs before, and yes, we'll talk about them soon enough, but with the technology finally catching up to make the characters visually recognizable, the money machine that was WWF greenlit the idea and the license went to Technos Japan and was headed by Yoshihisa Kishimoto, who had previously done a little bit of work on Matt Mania, which set the standard for wrestling arcade games and was primarily seen in Japan. Technos was known for side-scrolling beat-em-up action-style games like Renegade, Karate Champ, River City Ransom, which is the greatest fighting game of all time, and yes, I will fight you over this. Violent sports games like Super Dodgeball and Super Spike Volleyball, the original wrestling arcade game Tag Team Wrestling, and a little franchise you might have heard of called Double Dragon. So yeah, this was the right team to make it happen. But time and money was short, and expectations were high. How do you fulfill the wish of young wrestling fans who want to step into the boots of their in-ring heroes? You cut corners, that's how. They used the same engine that they had made for Double Dragon 2 for the gameplay. Not a bad idea, considering how good Double Dragon 2 was. With a mix of striking and grappling moves in the Double Dragon games, using only two buttons, it was only a matter of tweaking the moves to make it pure pro wrestling. The tag team concept was pushed for the gameplay, like many early wrestling games. 
Due to time constraints, Technos shifted the Megabucks, which was Ted DiBiase and Andre the Giant, to the role of final bosses, and eliminated Rick Rude and Brutus the Barber Beefcake entirely. Other shortcuts included making Hacksaw Jim Dugan and Ted DiBiase the same skin with different coloring to save time and money, and just reskin Double Dragon 2 level 2 boss, Adore, as Andre the Giant. The game hit arcades in 1989, was named WWF Superstars to connect it to the TV programming of the same name, and it was a smash hit. I mean, heck, you actually got ring entrances with the ring carts used in WrestleMania 3, and if you pay close attention, you'll notice little details like Macho Man wearing his glasses in robe to the ring, the Million Dollar Man wearing his tuxedo as part of it. The wrestlers will wear different color trunks in each match as though it were a different episode. The matches were taking place in New York City and later would shift to Tokyo. So it was very much presented as the main event of a television program that you would watch yourself as kids so you really got to put yourself into the tv show into the tv matches into the tv moment it was immersive it was fun and it was everything you would want when you were a young wrestling fan the referee was in the ring you were cheered on by a giant crowd of clearly defined and individual faces including an easter egg in the form of billy from double dragon you used the Double Dragon engine controls of Punch Kick Grapple by mashing buttons like an idiot during gameplay. You could lock up, exchange grappling moves. When you locked up, you'd push back and forth, so it actually looked like a struggle. It was visually fantastic. Irish whipped them into the ropes with a clothesline waiting for your opponent when they came flying back at you. And none of this was new to the world of wrestling video games, but it had never looked so good and it was never so accessible to young video game players in the United States and with representatives of the stars you cheered and booed on your television. The moves were character specific. Again, nothing new in wrestling games, but it took it to a different emotional level to climb to the top ropes and drop an elbow as the Macho Man. Ultimate Warrior had his gorilla press, no information as to whether he held anybody up for money backstage to come out for the match, Hogan had his leg drop, the Big Boss Man put people down with a Big Boss Slam, and Honky Tonk Man could land the shake, rattle, and roll, and no word on whether he would demand too much money if you asked him to do commentary for an indie show, or maybe that was just my personal experience alone. You could fight to the outside and land a dive to the jerks you just threw out of the ring. So long as you can make it back in by a 20 count, and while American wrestling was defined by a 10 count on the outside, the 20 count probably comes from Japanese wrestling having a 20 count, and the Japanese developers leaning into that, and providing a longer chance at gameplay for what was most likely a button-mashing panic fight on the outside. You could pick up a table from an angle that defies physics and the limits of core strength, and you could break it in half over your teammate, and when you are 12 years old, that is the coolest goddamn thing you could do. You could double-team your opponents, having the man on the outside grab them and hold them in the ropes while you worked them over. You could taunt with Hogan holding his hand to his ear, Warrior pounding his chest, Honky Tonk doing his little dance. 
And there were cutscenes of Mean Gene Okerlund interviewing Andre the Giant and Ted DiBiase while Virgil stood nearby counting money. They actually talked and sounded eh, close to the actual people as possible. Originally, they were going to have the real stars record dialogue, but time and money. More specifically, the lack thereof, and that meant they went with on-staff sound-alikes who just happened to be around. It mostly worked, except for poor Andre, who sounds like a cruel impression from a hack stand-up comedian. When you win enough matches, you face off against the Megabucks. A team created and named to mock and challenge the Mega Powers, the team of Hogan and Savage. And if you beat them, you get a shot of a newspaper announcing you as new tag team champions and get congratulated by Miss Elizabeth, which I assure you was the crowding achievement and greatest wish of most prepubescent boys of that day. It was visually fantastic, had great gameplay and multiplayer modes, and was fun enough to blow through your entire weekly allowance in a single afternoon of button mashing with your friends. But what came before this titan of interactive grappling gaming? Arcade games had been a common part of entertainment for years, and the Nintendo Entertainment System had been a pop culture prize in America since 1986 and in Japan since 1983. There were also the Atari and computer systems, so where was the wrestling content then? The answer? All over the place. Tag Team Wrestling, aka The Big Pro Wrestling, was released in 1983 and looks exactly like it was released in 1983. This was the era of Miss Pac-Man, Pitfall, Centipede, and Pole Position. The graphics are unsophisticated enough to be distracting, and the gameplay so bad that I checked to see if my controller was actually plugged in. The game was ported to the Nintendo Entertainment System in 1986 with the teams renamed as the Ricky Fighters and the Strong Bads. And dear lord, somebody needs to pick up that name and be the Strong Bads. And apparently it was such a hit that I never heard of it until I started researching this episode. Meanwhile in the arcades, Matt Mania, which was a Japanese pro wrestling game released by Technos Japan before they landed the WWF license, it was the first game to capitalize on the case of Hulkamania that infected pop culture worldwide. The gameplay seemed like a lower pixelated test run for WWF superstars. It had 3D depth in the action, you could make it to the top rope for a high spot, do a suicide dive after throwing your opponent out of the ring. It's a thoroughly enjoyable game that was groundbreaking for 1985. But the most fun came from the characters in the game. You played as Dynamite Tommy, which I'm sure has nothing to do with Tom Billington, the Dynamite Kid, who was a huge star in Japan. And his opponents include Insane Warrior, or Insane Warrior in the Japanese version, who looks and wrestles like Road Warrior Animal, which I'm sure was a total coincidence. I'm sure lots of people were rocking the post-apocalyptic shoulder pads, makeup, and mohawk style at the time. Karate Fighter, who looks like he should be a kung fu fighter based on his looks. He kicks and chops his way through the match, most likely looking for martial arts movie fans to check out the game. The biggest disappointment is him having nunchucks with him, but not using them during the match. Coco Savage, 
uh, black wild man character, clearly patterned after Bobo Brazil. He wears leopard skin and wrestles barefoot. He is also the only one who doesn't punch or kick. He uses shoulder tackles, Mongolian chops, a body splash from the top ropes, and a giant swing throw. And of course, the Piranha, a Lucha Libre Rudo who is in no way patterned after Mil Mascaras's Tiburon mask. He's a dirty wrestler who will pull hair, choke, and gouge eyes. No word on whether he'll eliminate himself from the Royal Rumble because he refused to put anyone over. And a character that changed depending on the time and country of its release, Blue Bloody, who was clearly Bruiser Brody, a huge star in Japan at the time, who later changed in name only to the Golden Hulk when released in North America. I was a little concerned on why they changed it when I checked the year. If you know about Bruiser Brody, you know what I mean. But the real gems are the random faces you'll see in the audience, like Superman, Batman and Robin, ZZ Top, Popeye, the alien from the movie Alien, Stevie Wonder, John Travolta, The Jackson 5, The Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, Darth Vader, and Princess Leia. Sadly, this one never made it to the consoles of the day, possibly due to warnings from copyright attorneys about using various intellectual properties. Whoopsie doodle. Now let's take a moment to talk about a 40-year-old Japanese manga series. Is this the worst embedded ad you'll ever hear on a podcast? No, I assure you that it'll all come together and make as much sense as anything ever does on this show. Kanuku Man, which translates to Muscle Man, was a manga comic book created by Yoshinori Nakai and Takashi Shimada, or as the duo branded themselves creatively, Yuta Tamago. They created Kikuman, they created Kanukuman as a parody of Ultraman but it eventually took on a life of its own and beyond the scope of their original creative intent. Much like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles started as a parody of ninja-soaked 80s comic book media, it became its own phenomenon. The manga was published from 1879 to 1987 and is one of the best-selling series in Japan. The series was adapted into an anime by Toei Animation, with 137 episodes airing between 1983 and 1986 on Nippon TV. The story revolves around Suguru Kanuku, aka Kanukuman, a clumsy doofus superhero who finds out that he is the long-lost prince of the planet Kanuku. That's right, Planet Muscle, where the greatest superheroes in the universe live. Being a big old dope, nobody accepts him and he is forced to enter a super-powered wrestling competition against the pretenders to the throne that he was meant to inherit. It was wild, it was weird, it was popular, so of course there had to be merchandise, and the most legendary line was the Kinkeshi figures. These were a popular collectible concept of sculpted erasers, which morphed into hard plastic with literally no other changes. The seemingly endless array of figures were very small, but very cool. However, they were monochrome flesh paint colored and had no articulation. They were very much the kind of thing you would buy in a quarter vending machine in the lobby of a Denny's. They were just tiny statue figures of the Kanukuman characters, but did I mention they were very cool? In 1985, the figures were licensed to Mattel for sales in the US and Canada. 
but how do you market them? They're cheap to make, but useless to play with, and from an unknown intellectual property to all but the most hardcore nerds in the pre-internet United States, the comic and cartoon was too violent to adapt or translate for children in the US, so how do you sell them? Turns out the best way to sell them as collectibles is to flood the market with hundreds of different figures and sell the collecting as the product. Renamed Muscle, millions of unusually small creatures lurking everywhere, and marketing was severed from the source material entirely and branded as the coolest thing to track down, buy, and hoard for no real purpose. The TV spots leaned into a 1950s alien invasion gimmick, replete with screaming crowds, running in terror, scientists offering far-fetched solutions, and a general making a heated call from a desk. Invasion of the muscle things. They've come to drive America nuts. They're ugly. They're weird. They're terrible. There are hundreds of them. The kids in the commercial were tasked with collecting them all to save the world? Who knows? But they were sold in packs of four, ten, and twenty-eight, and asked the consumer, or the kids who will pester the actual consumer until a purchase is made, how many can you capture? It was brilliant marketing. The toys had no value as toys, but were invaluable as nearly impossible to complete collectible series. Every figure was cool enough to be the envy of the rest of the kids at school, prompting them to bother their parents at the next trip to any store with a toy department. There were so many weird sculpts. There was like a hand covered with eyes, various weird wrestlers, a pyramid with a face. I don't know what his finisher would be, but I bet it's a little on the pointy side. But only two actually had names, because who's got the marketing budget to give proper names to literally hundreds of tiny useless monster figures? Kanukuman was called Muscle Man, and Buffalo Man was called... Who boy? Terry Ball. And for the knockoff enthusiasts, there were figures that were clearly Terry Funk, Dusty Rhodes, Abdullah the Butcher, and Jushin Thunder Liger, who were big stars in Japanese wrestling at the time. The figures came in blister packs of four, trash cans of ten, clearly ripping off the Garbage Pail Kids marketing, and a prestige pack of 28, which still barely put a dent in completing the collection, because when you were Pokemon before Pokemon, you gotta make it essentially impossible to catch them all. The accessories were equally useless, with mail away Batlin belts which was a championship belt with a tiny ring in the middle, slightly smaller versions of Muscle Man and... Terry Bull. Inside the ring, inside a see-through plastic shell, in the middle of the belt. There was also the hard knock and rock and ring, where you could clip the figures into controllable slots and mash them against each other like a moron child making them kiss. There was a board game which made a turn-based battle royal and included a lime green Terry Ball figure. Again, forcing collectors to make the purchase just for the singular goddamn toy. The line started to lose popularity quickly as Mattel provided no new figures and instead started pumping out the same old figures in different colors and collectors lost interest. Today, tracking these things down is difficult and, and expensive, and it makes me deeply regret losing or destroying mine when I was a kid. And now the question you're most likely asking, what the hell does this have to do with wrestling video games? First of all, I don't like your tone, and how dare you come at me like that. 
because now it's time to talk about tag team match muscle for the NES. It was a niche game connected to a niche product for marketing that was disconnected from its source material, made for a gaming system that was brand new in the United States. Published by Bandai and released in Japan in 1985 and the U.S. in 1986, it is a very primitive game from a very primitive time in gaming, and while most games of that time were simple in concept and execution, it does not stack up against the classics of the day like Excite Bike, Kung Fu, Ice Climber, Duck Hunt, and Super Mario Bros. Maybe that's a testament to a game developer trying to reach beyond the limitation of his technology of the day and failing, much like Icarus flying too close to the sun. Maybe it was a phoned-in piece of brand exploitation. Who knows? Regardless, the game is terribly simple, and also just plain terrible. You pick one of the giant round-headed characters, including Muscle Man, Terry Ball, and something that looks like a Frankenstein Homer Simpson. The matches are spent running around the ring trying to punch the other guy, and occasionally, and quite accidentally, doing a wrestling move. You can Superman fly after bouncing off the ropes, and a lump-headed weirdo throws power-ups into the ring every few minutes. How do you pin your opponent? You don't! When they're beaten, they fall on their back with their legs up and the winner does a happy dance. The matches take place in front of either a badly illustrated audience or a decently illustrated flower garden. I'm not sure which. There is no story mode, no real progress, just an infinite number of matches until your heart finally gives out. And now we get to the gem, my favorite, a defining game not just for gaming but for wrestling itself, Nintendo Pro Wrestling. It's my favorite, and objectively the most fun and most likely the best wrestling video game for the NES. Pro Wrestling, or better known today as Nintendo Pro Wrestling because it was, it was on the Nintendo. First release on the... First released on the Con Disc System in Japan, it was the brainchild of Masada Masuda, who consulted on and was good friends with the creator of Matt Mania. It was a real attempt to bring the look and feel of pro wrestling to the home gaming system, with a large crowd, the VWA logo on the ring, commentary ringside, a tracking cameraman following the action back and forth, and a referee who, realistically, often has to run and dive from across the ring to count the falls. The action isn't the kick-punch-fest of the other games, with tie-ups, whips, clotheslines, and actual throws and slams being the norm as opposed to a rare button-mashing accident. It's a game where you can actually try pinfalls left and right, has decent high spots off of the top rope, you can actually create strategy. Sure, there were the glitch fests, uh, they gave a little bit of a cheat for the computer, like when you try getting up after being dropped on your head, and the goddamn computer keeps spin-kicking you as you're trying to get up until you're ready to throw the controller through the screen. The characters are once again beautifully unauthorized knockoffs of famous wrestlers of the day. As always, I get excited by carny bullshit. There is Fighter Hayabusa, who is in no way Antonio Inoki. Giant Panther, a tall, blonde, tanned wrestler who at least doesn't rip his shirt up and cup his hand to his ear. There's Kin Korn Karn, a knockoff of Killer Khan. 
and one of my favorites, King Slender, who is a totally sense-making name for someone who looks an awful lot like Ric Flair. There's the Amazon, a creature from the Black Lagoon clone who bites his opponent's head as a finisher, while the referee sadly does nothing to stop it. The Amazon is also reportedly a big inspiration for Blanca in Street Fighter 2. And finally, we have Starman, the famous Starman, the bright pink luchador from Mexico with a star on his face, who is so influential in wrestling that Joey Janela once wrestled as him in a uh, spandex outfit. While revisiting this game, I had so much damn fun that I was up way past my bedtime and was extra cranky the next day, but it was worth it. I loved that losing a few times doesn't end the game and force a restart. It just knocks you down a ranking. When you beat everyone, and with each victory earning the beautiful mistranslation, a winner is you. You are crowned the VWA champion and now must defend it 10 times, twice against all opponents, and once this is done, you get your big match against the nearly unbeatable Tiger Mask. I mean... The Great Puma, it definitely wasn't Tiger Mask. Sadly, I didn't get this far. Please don't judge me too harshly. I'm going to keep playing even after I finish this episode. In 1987, the very first WWF game was released. WWF Micro League Wrestling for the Commodore 64. Do you remember the Commodore 64? Did you know it even existed? It doesn't matter either way. Micro League was known for Micro League Baseball, which was a big hit at the time, and they pitched, get it, their idea to WWF. Vince McMahon asked if they could fix it so Hulk Hogan could always win, prompting an explanation of what a video game actually was. And the gameplay is genuinely interesting. It was a turn-based game with a menu to choose your move. It was digitized photos, so like quick little two-second bursts from WWF matches, so it felt like a quick-paced slideshow of a match under your control. It had very low-res versions of wrestlers' music and images of ring entrances. It had Vince in a window doing commentary on the match, ring intros, crowd reaction shots, and interviews. It was a hell of a product, especially to put onto a floppy disk. The downside of it being on a floppy disk is you only got two matches, Hogan vs. Macho Man and Hogan vs. Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. They had to create shots of Orndorff and Savage holding up the WWF Championship belt exclusively for this gameplay because they had not won those titles. A later version had bonus match expansion with Macho Man vs. Honky Tonk Man, Hacksaw Jim Dugan vs. Harley Race, Hogan vs. Ted DiBiase, and Rick Rude vs. Jake Roberts. I didn't get to play this one, mostly because I never heard of it, and I couldn't find a mod to uh, port it over to anything I own. But it seems like a really cool attempt to make a good-looking brand-specific WWF game. And this brings us... Full circle. This brings us back to the year 1989 when it finally happened. Finally. Oh my god. WWF WrestleMania came to the Nintendo Entertainment System. 
The commercial showed a wilding out kid in his bedroom, challenging the Macho Man via his Nintendo. We see about three seconds of gameplay shot on the TV as it's being played, so it's low res and quick as heck, with double that of footage from an actual match. At the end, a figure with a robe says, Oh yeah, I want a rematch! And what I just did is about as good an impression of Macho Man Randy Savage as you would hear in the advertisement, and if it was him, I apologize to the memory of Randy Savage. The game came out leading up to WrestleMania V. Most of my friends and I had Nintendos at this point, and were freaking the fuck out at the thought of playing it in our living rooms. In our basements, in our bedrooms, wherever the neighborhood kids gathered to get sugared up on soda and play video games from Friday night to Sunday afternoon. The box said, bigger, better, batter. And that's batter, B-A-D-D-E-R. It's not referring to what you use to make cookies or a cake. Our heads were exploding with the images from WWF superstars at the arcade. All the quarters we were going to save and how we could play our favorite game all night long during sleepovers. And I'm not... Well, I'm not going to say it's the worst thing to happen to me as a kid, but after my parents' very awful divorce, this was a close fucking second. This isn't what we wanted. This isn't what we were expecting. This was... Well, it was terrible. By the standard of the day, it wasn't awful, but compared to the arcade experience, it was socks for Christmas. It was socks for Christmas when you asked Santa for your parents to stop yelling at each other. The load screen of Hulk Hogan ripping his shirt off looks less like the passion of Hulkamania and more like a weird uncle who got too drunk at the family barbecue. We were excited to see the numerous stars, including Bam Bam Bigelow, who ended up being the only one you could distinguish during gameplay from across the room. The 8-bit graphics made them look like a spring break fight amongst the stepdads after a Little League game. You would spend the gameplay chasing each other around, smashing buttons for punching and kicking, almost always missing. Character-specific power-ups would fly across the screen, and if you could manage one of the very few actual wrestling moves, it would be a miracle beyond repetition. The only real joy while playing was Bam Bam Bigelow's cartwheel, Correction, the other joy was managing to knock down Bam Bam Bigelow while he was doing his cartwheel in two-player mode, making your friend very angry. And speaking of friends, there was a tournament mode, so at least you could take out your frustration on your friends, possibly ending friendships, possibly ending up with a childhood fistfight in the rumpus room. And I feel like a fight is a form of rumpus, so it's the right place to do it. What went wrong? Acclaim having sole license for WWF home games. That's what went wrong. This is why so many amazing arcade games never made it to the home systems. The arcade X-Men game was legendary. The side-scroller, very much like the Konami Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle games, where you'd be picking all your favorite X-Men and fighting Sentinels, was legendary but couldn't make it to the NES because LJN had exclusive rights to home systems for the X-Men, and thus stuck us with a top-scrolling, gauntlet-cloning, absolute garbage game that broke our hearts. 
One of the rare exceptions was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, because Konami held the rights for both arcade and home systems, and we could go on that side-scrolling, foot-clan-smashing, turtle-in-time adventure that we all knew and loved. Wrestling games had been a staple of the industry since the industry began, much like with television, radio, the internet, social media, pro wrestling video games continued to be part of the technology. Very much a, the medium is the message for the Marshall McLuhan readers out there. Pro wrestling video games continued to be pumped out for the Nintendo, increasing in quality as much as the technology would allow. With a handful more WWF games, the truly fantastic Tecmo Pro Wrestling, and even a WCW game as well, but those are stories for another day. Wrestling game development continued through the life cycle of every gaming system upgrade. Through the Super Nintendo, the GameCube, the N64, PlayStation 1 through whatever the shit system you're gaming on today. Wrestling games are a through line in the lives of wrestling fans worldwide, from Japan to New York City. Wearing out our thumbs one three count at a time, and if I were a more clever man, I would have made a thumb wrestling joke, but instead, I think it's time to wrap things up. Pro wrestling video games are like pro wrestling action figures. They're part of, they're like pro wrestling t-shirts, costumes. Every bit of merchandise is a magical connection between a fan and his hero, a fan and the product, a fan and the mythology. And the video games are just a little bit extra magical because you get to immerse yourself. You get to step into those characters. You get to control the outcome. You get to experience the struggle, the combat, the the epicness that happens in the squared circle. And sometimes it delivers and sometimes it doesn't. And... Fortunately for me and for people of my generation, we got to experience the dizzying highs and the bottom basement lows of that process of that development. And since I have a little bit of extra time, I do want to talk about what we're going to be doing for the next batch of episodes. We finished our big wrestling in the 20s, the Goldust Trio, what happened during World War I. That series is right there to listen to if you've never listened to it. Start with Stanislaus Abisko, go on the wild journey with us of how wrestling reformed after the Gotch Hackenschmidt era. But... I had to look back at some of those early episodes, like when we first started this show, because when we first started this, I could barely now call what I was doing research. It was more of a book report. I would take one or two books on the subject, and I would take that author's work at face value. I would take their research as complete and infallible. I would take their subjective views as gospel. I would maybe combine it a little bit and I'd say, here's what here's what, what we know about this guy. And now I am a much better researcher. I, I go through the newspaper archives. I find a lot more details and have learned a lot more. And in doing so, I have found out how wrong some of those early books were. And that's not knocking those authors per se, because they were working with the best tools they had at the time. Because in those days, you didn't have the Library of Congress Digital Archive. You didn't have the British Newspaper Archive. You didn't have the 
uh, like newspapers.com or newspaperarchive.com. These didn't exist. They had to go down to the library and break out the microfiche and scan through everything hoping for a hit. So it was more regionalized information and it wasn't the wide spectrum of information. Now, if I go and I want to look at what happened to Ed Strangler Lewis on January 23rd, 1925, guess what? I can pull up literally hundreds, if not thousands, of articles with his name as a tag. So again, I am benefiting from the technology of today. They didn't have that. Doesn't make their work any less important or complete for what they were trying to do. But I want to examine some of the stories that we did back in the day without doing a full redo. I don't want to just do a pure William Muldoon remake episode. I don't want to do that for Evan Strangler Lewis, but I do want to revisit those eras. So we will be revisiting the days of William Muldoon. We will be revisiting the days of Evan Strangler Lewis. We will be revisiting the days of Frank Gotch and Jörg Hackenschmidt, but we'll be doing it from a different perspective through the eyes of different people, and I really think you're going to enjoy it because I enjoyed putting it together. But for now, it's time to wrap things up. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for listening to us or listening to me this time. If you like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You know that I like posting all the weird old articles and photos that I find while doing my research. If you don't, please do because you'll see some wild stuff. If you want to contribute to my research, the Venmo is in the episode description. I do buy a lot of books. I do pay for a lot of archive uh, access, but I would keep doing this for free no matter what because this is my obsession. So for me, I'm me. Uh, good night, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for being here. Thank <laughs> you.